Hello and welcome to the 1106 of a second photography podcast. I've got a guest today and I'm really glad to introduce Jeff Horn. Yeah, my name's Jeff Horn. I'm a photographer and video maker. At the moment, I work for small and medium sized uh, corporate clients, but I've got a few other things in the pipeline and I'm kind of almost entirely self taught. Had a lot of jobs in the past, but they've all been in content creation, but I've been in business for myself for about a year. That leads us neatly on to the episode it's content creation for photographers. And we're going to have a chat about why photographers should make content, how they should make content. I make content for photographers. Obviously, I do this podcast, which is weekly. And I have a YouTube channel, which I try to do weekly, but that never seems to happen. And Jeff also has a YouTube channel. And of course, Jeff's social media profiles and links will be in the description. So you can check those out later. Why should photographers make online content? In short, it's to try and stand out. I was talking to another um, more successful photographer than me uh, recently, and he's based in London and he works with larger commercial clients. And he's, he told me that there was something ridiculous, like 100,000 photographers just in the London area. And sort of technically I'm with within that catchment. So that doesn't even include me because I'm about 40 miles away. There are loads of us. There are so many of us that it's that it's not enough to just take a photo is i'm not sure those days ever did exist but they certainly don't now photographers have got to think of things as a business and creating content online is part of that business so that as well as being good at what you do with a camera you have to be visible a client's going to hire people for particular reasons based on your skills and experience and what you can do a client will hire who, who they want to hire but they can't hire someone if they don't know who you are so you've you've got to be out there for them to even know that you exist. So I know some truly amazing photographers who have been honing their craft for years, but they are awful at getting themselves known online. So they just don't get any business. And I also know some pretty mediocre photographers who are very good at business and are doing very well. So it's as always, really, it's not about what you know. It's about who you know, certainly to begin with. It's kind of always been that way, I think. Yeah. So from my perspective, creating content online, there's a lot of ways you can go about it. But I've decided that I am the front of the the business. So pretty much everything you'll see online is in, includes me. There's that old sort of thing that the most successful wedding photographer isn't always the one who's technically the best it's the one who's best at engaging with people crawling people marshalling people and I, I suppose in the age of the internet maybe the most successful photographer is the most visible one particularly in somewhere like London or the best known for their niche do you would you agree with that yeah I'd, I would I would disagree a little bit with your analogy on the wedding thing because the one of the most successful wedding photographers I know, doesn't get involved at all in all that organisation thing. Part of his pre-organisation is to deliberately tell his clients that he's not going to organise the day. But but that's, that's sort of a, a separate thing. But yeah, absolutely. It's, to a certain extent, it's the profile rather than the ability. Thank you. What a lucky wedding photographer or what a clever wedding photographer. I certainly envy him or her. I, I don't know which gender they are. Increasing your profile via content. What benefits does that bring? And is it worth the effort, do you think? Increasing content online is there's a sane way to do it and an insane way to do it. So the way that you can do it, if you don't think about it, is to just throw things out there 
and just keep producing and just you know i'll put something here i'll put something there and then you don't really have a plan so kind of the uh, plans always work they're they're boring but they get they get the job done quite easy to to sit sit there at home and think oh i've had a bit of inspiration i'll i'll make a bit of content i'll, I'll do a video about that i'll do uh, you know behind the scenes of something whatever and then i'll put it on this channel but what you really need to do is to turn that into a bit of a, a release strategy so if you come up with an idea for a video make it but then whilst you're editing it also think about where else can i put this so can i do a shorter version for instagram it even comes down to the orientation of the content itself so on some platforms, it needs to be portrait and on some, it needs to be landscape. So there's that sort of organizational thinking of, I want to be creative or I want to show myself to be creative, but behind the scenes, I want it to make sense for myself so that you don't end up doing the same work or pretty much the same work again and again and again. I suppose the one of the one of the benefits, because you can look like you're churning out a load of content, but actually you are, but the effort to do so is not as high as it seems because you've thought about it beforehand. From a more facing perspective, for me, it's about familiarity. All of my channels now have got my name in them. Although, although I'm certainly not expecting people to look at my image and think, oh, I like the look of that, that guy. I want people to to know who I uh, to know what I look like, and so kind of know who's going to walk through the door. In terms of time and effort, it sort of depends. So there's there's sort of a few way, a few ways of thinking about it. So the, if you're thinking about sort of video content to promote a, a photographer, it doesn't have to be top-notch broadcast quality content because no one will expect that, and no, uh, quite honestly, no one cares. There's a there's a there's a degree to which technical competence in content is required to get people to watch. Beyond a certain point, it really doesn't matter. So as long as you can be seen and as long as you can be heard, people will watch to a certain extent, and then the content becomes more important so kind of how long they watch for is sort of a completely different metric as an example on youtube people will switch off i think it's something like within four seconds if they can't hear what you're saying and they'll give you about a minute i think if the if the sort of the image isn't very good but the thing is if you've got a 10 minute video and you sort of need people to get to the eighth minute in order to have engaged with your subject if the subject and the presentation isn't very interesting, then they simply won't get that far. So YouTube audience particularly, well, all social media channels, audiences are so fickle and you can move away from the content so easily. What's in it needs to be uh, sort of quite compelling to a certain extent. Within that, if you're just sort of promoting yourself and you're just sort of getting yourself out there, then you can just sort of just get some stuff online and it will be it will be a benefit. But if it's of direct relevance to the quality of your work, then you need to pay more attention to it. So I was listening very intently to what you're saying, and I think there's a quality threshold. And I think it's acceptable, no matter what type of production you are, to just get your phone out and do a little video clip for something like Instagram. But I think people now expect such high quality on YouTube. And of course, when you're starting out on YouTube, if you're doing an unboxing video, people don't really care about the quality. But the comments I've had on my YouTube channel show me that people compare what they watch on my YouTube channel to professional YouTubers in the same space, like, you know, I don't know, Matt Granger, DP Review, all those channels. And it's little nitpicky things that come up in the comments that make me believe that people pretty much watch YouTube expecting to see a TV show. So I, I think my experience 
audience has been for YouTube, it has to be so much higher than for a little clip you put out on Instagram. I'm not saying that's going to be everyone's experience, but I just think the audience now has a really high threshold in YouTube. I think there's the degree to which they say they have that expectation and there's the degree to which they carry out that expectation by moving on. So you're, yeah, you're right. There's kind of the... what. Um, I think there's this perception that once you start on YouTube, you, that you've got some kind of this vast array of resources behind you to create things. And in actual fact, most people are just using whatever camera that they've got. And if they're lucky, a microphone. And if they're really, really lucky, some lights as well. And yeah, so it's absolutely not a not a fair comparison to uh, to compare you to one of the channels I subscribe to is called Unbox Therapy, and it's got 15 million subscribers. And they're in this vast warehouse, which is immaculately lit and sounded and, you know, and it's just it's just not realistic to actually compare most YouTubers to that. But people do. It's kind of I think it's because it's 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 on that same platform. It's it's only a click away. So you might have a recommendation for from your from my channel with whatever it is, 100 and something subscribers. You might have a link to something with 15 million or a link to. I don't know, you might get a link to Peter McKinnon with his, I don't know how, how many millions he's got now, and the huge time and resource and money that is you're able to put into them. I think possibly what the YouTube audience don't understand is that beyond a, per, uh, beyond a certain point, it's a genuine living to be on YouTube. So, you know, the professional YouTuber. And so just by putting out any content, they will get an amount of money in their bank account and that, and that they can reinvest that into what their channel looks like so after a certain point and it's a high level it's kind of several it's probably a couple of million subscribers it kind of pays for itself everyone below that is struggling to make the best with the resources that they've got i film my youtube stuff in my shed and i have to position the camera so that the bikes aren't in frame and you know things like that i've got a setup where i can do quite good top-down videos and i've got a light and a big scrim to um, get soft lighting but most of my videos are sort of of the unboxing product reviews that sort of thing if I get something for photography or videography I review it yeah it's not my living and if it was my living it would be a depressing living I think because I really wouldn't make well I'd have to live in the shed if it, if it, if it was my only source of income basically I, I think I've often said on this channel when I've talked about YouTube people do compare whatever they see with the Peter McKinnon's you know the professional, the unbox video, I'm sorry, not unbox video, the unbox therapy, that is their, that is their income that they do that five, six days a week, work very hard at it. But I suppose we're in this podcast episode looking at photographers who just want to increase their profile. We're not expecting anyone to build a studio or oh, you can if you want, but that's not what this is about. We're going to look at some quick tips to just help you do a bit more content creation so I'm going to go on to my next question of the types of content that can be created. Really, YouTube is the obvious one. A podcast is another one, obviously, in a podcast. Instagram photos, Instagram stories and clips. I've never seen much of a big thing in Facebook videos. So to me, the big types of content are YouTube, Instagram, to a certain extent blogging. But I'm not sure how big blogging is at the moment. I think it can help get discovered on the web if you're looking for something like RicoGR and then you search for that and you come across someone's blog who is a RicoGR blog. You're going to look at their work, but what do you think? What what types of content should 
be created and what what should the priority be? In terms of priority order for content creation, it's it's to a certain extent it comes down to where you want customers to go or where you, where where you want to be found. In other words, your funnel. Most people need people to need potential customers to get to their website, and therefore you need content on your website to make it to make your website as a whole visible to Google. And really, that's the point of the blog. So the blog does have content, and it's uh, it's re- it's readable, and it's kind of it's meant to be informative. But actually, the purpose of the blog, from a discoverability perspective, is that Google likes websites that are updated. So if you create your website and it doesn't have a blog, then Google will register that it exists, and then it it will probably never appear on anyone's top 10. So kind of you you want you need your website to appear really in the top 30, so the top three pages of any Google search. And obviously ideally in the top 10, so it's in the first page. And that simply won't happen if your website is not updated. And the easiest way to continually update a website is to write blogs. Blogs actually are a bit of a, it's one of these things that, yeah, I've got to do the blog. And I know that the only reason to do the blog is so that my website is updated. So it's not about the content of the blog. It's about the fact that you're interacting with your own website. So they are very, very important. So as an example, I'm rebuilding my website right now. And while I'm doing it, while I'm sort of thinking about the layout and everything, I'm also thinking about sort of, right, I need my first 10 blog posts. What can they be about? to make them short, to make them informative, but to make it so that I can actually produce them. So that is important. So kind of boring, but important. And after that, it sort of depends where you want your customers to be. So I'm, I've been using Instagram a lot this year. So even within that, what's the best way of becoming visible? Do you continually update or do you hardly ever update, but you interact with other accounts and in truth, it's a bit of both. So it's the, I kind of back to the, it's not what you know, it's who you know thing. In terms of all social media, they reward people for using their platform. So from an Instagram perspective, there's these sort of mini, mini rules within things. So the, if anyone comments on one of your posts, you should comment within 60 minutes. And that uh, response should be more than four words long. From an Instagram perspective, they are wanting conversation to occur rather than just this is great. That's the end of the sentence. So that's important in order to grow the Instagram channel. So kind of, the, and again, people don't know who you are unless you talk to other Instagram accounts. Facebook, I've not really used that much yet because it's a bit of an annoyance because if you create an Instagram account and you tell Instagram that you want it to be a business account, by creating that business account, it automatically creates a Facebook page for that account. And I've got kind of six Instagram accounts. So I've got these six Facebook pages plus my personal account itself on Facebook. So I've got all these pages and most of them are empty because I, I, I don't really know. I don't really want just kind of they, they generate themselves. I have now realized that I need to focus on one of them particularly because again, you just sort of need to be there. And the, the audiences are different on different pla- uh, on different platforms. So the Instagram audience is a younger audience than Facebook. And it's uh, obviously both, uh, there's LinkedIn as well. And that's a, a different kind of mechanic. They're kind of obviously more business orientated. And then there is the nightmare world of Twitter where uh, you, you should really be there. But I find it such an aggressive marketplace that um, I haven't put much effort into it. I've been committing some cardinal sins and I've been doing some really good practice. So for a long time, I didn't have an Instagram account because it was just another thing to update. And I sort of felt 
if I had an Instagram account, I would really have to post every day. Then I'd be doing things solely for Instagram. And I put it off and I put it off. I thought it's another thing to do. And, you know, I've got Twitter for this podcast that I just tweet my new episodes. I don't really do anything else. I've got YouTube. I've got this podcast. I've got a full and intense nine to five job. I've got a family. I thought, I don't, I don't want another thing, which is Instagram. So I held off for ages. And then I thought, I'll do Instagram. I very soon found I, I was posting every day and I was one of my things post every day. And I then found that my worst fear had come true, that I was shooting things just for Instagram. So I'd go out and I'd do a one or two hour street photography shoot with the aim of really just putting the best images on Instagram. And so I carried on and I was amazed how much interaction I got, how quickly I got up to a certain number of followers, you know, how many comments I got. I actually had more followers than I was following. So I was pretty pleased with that. And then we went into lockdown. I stopped and I stopped simply because I thought I don't want to be posting about the past. I can't go out and do anything. So I just put up a sort of notice that said, for now, I'm not doing anything. I've run out of film type thing. And I haven't done anything since. I, I feel Instagram should be of the moment. And it's not of the moment because you put edited pictures up and things like that. But to keep putting up your past work, I felt wasn't a good thing to do. And it's not massively important for me. It doesn't generate any income. So I didn't do it. So that was my that was my good thing that I was doing. But my cardinal sin is on YouTube. I don't stick to my niche. And again, this has been affected by lockdown. I, I know it's a sin. I know it's wrong, but I've done it anyway. I haven't got a niche in photography on the YouTube channel. I just do any type of photography. Probably I do more on street photography and more on lighting and more on fashion photography than other genres. And I do lots of review things. But equally, any YouTuber is also a videographer. So as soon as lockdown happened and I couldn't go out and do photography, I thought, I don't want to do the all this thing of you're stuck inside. Here's a photography idea you can do in your house. I don't want to do that. So I started focusing more on videography and video editors and things like that my last couple of couple of videos are completely nothing to do with photography they're more videography i recognize that's a cardinal sin but i'm also trying to keep up with the consistent video uploads so you'll probably tell me off or say yes you have committed a cardinal sin and what's really interesting is there's been a bit I'll say big it's not big there has been a growth in views watch time etc but i don't know if that's because my content is reaching more people, I'm putting out longer videos, or just more people are watching YouTube because of current conditions. It's difficult, isn't it? To a certain extent, don't worry about it. But I'm not going to say you've you've committed a, a cardinal sin at all, because it sounds like where you've gone has been still related. The real cardinal sin in terms of the YouTube has been it. Um, and who am I to say this? I'm just another just another person. But um, they've, I've I started in uh, landscape um, vlogging. Um, and I realized after after a little while that um, my release, um, I was trying to release every week and I, I just never got to that level. Um, and I realized that it was because I just didn't have enough interest in it. I was uh, I realized that rather than going out uh, on a photography trip and documenting it, uh, I was thinking of places that I thought would make a good video. And uh, go. so I was effectively I was more of a YouTuber than I was a landscape photographer. So because of that, I sort of changed. I thought, well, no, this, I'm just going to run out of ideas. So I stopped 
visibly stopped. I had a kind of a, a video that kind of says, no, I'm, I'm sort of resetting. And as it happened, that pretty much coincided with the be beginning of lockdown. No one needs to be about 100% about the, the same thing, because if you go by what people think all the time and what people comment, there will always be people that disagree with whatever you do. So the, to a certain extent, just don't worry about it. It's kind of, there's no point being on YouTube at all if the concept of making another video is drudgery. It needs to be enjoyable for you. Where I had taken issue a bit um, is there have been a few landscapers that I've seen who have been, they've been quite militant about the, the content. And it's, for, well, for some photographers that I watch, they, um, it's very much only about the image for them. So the, and they're, they're quite militant about that. So kind of the, um, there's no point, there's no point doing this unless the image is worth it. And then like everyone else, they were put into lockdown. And I think for the health of their channel, they would be better off just pausing it. I mean, the 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 concept of releasing something every week is to have this familiarity so people sit down or stand or, do, you know, wherever they watch their video. But that kind of scheduling kind of aspect, it doesn't really matter. And But what a lot of people did, I think, is to even the most militant about being single-minded and sort of doing a single subject, they moved away. And so the, they uh, were doing macro videos and uh, nature in the garden videos. And it's kind of the content itself is fine. But it's at complete odds with what they were saying three weeks before. I felt there was a sense with a number of YouTubers that I can see this is not what you really want to be doing. So I can f I can feel that in the content you're producing. So don't produce it. Just give yourself a bit of a rest. I had a guest on before who has a landscape photography YouTube channel, and his his vlogs are, are, are very long. And it it's a vlog thing, and it goes through the journey of plans, what he's going to do, how he does it, where he goes, setting up the angles, and then getting the end image. Now, I mean, his videos can be anywhere from eight, eight to fifteen minutes long, but. What I do if I watch one of those videos is I watch the start and I skip to the end because all I'm interested in is looking at where he went and then looking at the image he got. I'm actually not interested in the journey. And I do wonder how important is the journey or conveying the journey or telling the story in online content creation? Yeah, it depends on your audience, I think. So there'll be some people that, um, like you, they want to, they basically want to see the result. And I often do the same on tutorial videos. So there's, particularly if it's sponsored, you know, the, so if it's a 10 minute video and it's sponsored by someone, I know somewhere in the middle, there's going to be a minute of sponsorship. So I can definitely skip that. So I watch the beginning bit to see what the, um, what the content's going to be. And then really I want to get to the steps. So all the bit about kind of talking about what's, what's gone before. Yeah, you can skip it. But that's, that's a very sort of mission orientated viewer. A lot of people watch YouTube as their main source of passive entertainment. So, And I know a few people that don't have a TV at all and watch everything on YouTube. So for them, it's uh, the longer form content is more, more relevant and they possibly of uh, more enjoyment to them. And there's a certain amount of, what's the term, not interactivity, sort of community. So the kind of the, um, you know, the, you're in this community of um, video makers. But the, I think there is a bit of a trap that people can get into that they're, they're, they start creating content for the other people that they know that do the same thing and they, they're calling that a community so kind of community of whatever type of um, photographer and that's fine if that's what you want your reach to be but there's only a certain amount of any particular niche audience 
So regardless of what it is, so if, you're, if your thing is macro, there's only so many people that are interested in macro photography. And for those people, like you were saying, you're kind of the, you might jump to the bit that's relevant to you. For the more passive people, they will be more interested in the quality of the content and sort of the, I suppose, getting to know the YouTuber a bit. I don't think there's any denying that the really popular YouTubers partly are popular because of their personality. So the, the channel is as much or more so about who they are than what they do. A great example of that is Peter McKinnon. The reason I stopped watching him about, I think about two years ago, is that I found his personality traits quite overbearing. So the whole kind of what's up and uh, making coffee and sort of the, you know, sort of the swinging his arms around and it's just kind of, that's really appealing to some audiences and they want to see more of Peter. You know, they click on, oh, I see, I see Peter's dropped a new video, I'll go and watch it immediately. But it, to me, they got they got to a point where kind of, oh God, he's going to be doing that again, isn't he? And so his personality sort of grated on me. But there seems to be a lot more tolerance for that sort of sort of thing. You know, who am I to argue? He's no idea how many millions he's on now, but um, that sort of thing works. And those people will probably watch from start to finish. So it sort of depends on what the audience is after. Huge respect for Peter McKinnon, but I'm really turned off by excessive use of B-roll. And I'm not singling <laughs> Peter McKinnon out for this, but again... Some people love B-roll. B-roll is important, but excessively using B-roll and too much B-roll makes me turn off or, or go somewhere else. I'm going to stress that I'm not a normal person and I'm not a representative of any demographic. I'm probably quite unique in that, and but that's just my feeling. I know lots of people like good B-roll. Let's talk about some simple tips for getting started. We we both have YouTube channels. We both look at creating stuff. You do it professionally. My profession is not photography related, so I don't do anything photography or video related professionally. I still sort of do this as a hobby, but I want to talk about some quick tips. And I think just sticking a camera somewhere while you do a photography shoot is probably really useful. And then just talking about it later and turning that into a video, but not taking ages on it. You shouldn't spend longer on the BTS video than you do on the photography shoot because the priorities are all wrong there. But probably one of the biggest tips I want to give today is if you have an iPhone and you can download something called Clips, which is an app made by Apple. It's a social media app, really. It films things. I think it films in a square profile. But what's brilliant about Clips is it will caption your voice, which takes so much effort out of Instagram posts. So you just record what you're doing in clips and you set it up beforehand so that it captions your voice. And then you've got a video of what you're doing and captions appear and you keep it short for 10 seconds and you've got something to put on Instagram that otherwise would be very hard to do. What are your tips, Jeff, just doing simple content? Well, firstly, that sounds like a great one because what I was going to say is that what you really don't want to end up with is hours of behind-the-scenes content. So that's that sounds like a great way to minimise it. Say you're going out to do a, um, uh, you're going to go out to do this shoot. Try and create a subject around it. It doesn't have to be a complex one. In fact, it's better to be simple and to have things in mind that you're going to talk about. So I work with models a lot. And so it might be that the, um, if I were to do a behind the scenes, it would be about the model type, you know, what, what she looks like, what her look is, or about where you are. And so uh, what you want to avoid, I think, is the appearance that you're just making it up on the spot. You want you want it to feel natural. But I think most content creation has to have a plan of, of some description. I think it shows rather if you try and create content totally off the cuff. Bullet pointing, being as simple as bullet pointing things is... Uh, a good way to keep on track so don't try and say everything in your video have a bit of a focus so this you know this is going to be about this this and this and then just 
don't say any more, you know, don't, don't try and turn it into a video about absolutely everything. And uh, the, something like that clips thing, um, that, because I'm not on iPhone, so I, I, I don't have that. That sounds like a, a pretty good discipline to get into. So kind of, I'm going to talk about this for 10 seconds, whatever it is, and then move on to the next thing. So it might be, you know, my ISOs, let's talk about something else. But I think uh, plan in miniature, what I would say is the, the best way to do things, because otherwise you'll ramble about everything. Yeah, it's so difficult to be natural. I think tip, tips I have is when you go and do something, always capture something that sets the context. So that might be a bit of B-roll. So I do model shoots as well. And I might say, do you mind if I just take a, take a bit of video of this on my phone, capture context, and then and then you can just turn it into a video of you've got your context, you've got a bit of you're doing something, and then you've got your result. I also think three parts is quite good a start a middle and end so for me skipping through that's why am i doing this here i am doing it and these are the results and a really successful strategy that i found is to work backwards that goes back to what you're saying about planning so if i'm making a youtube video i've started to work backwards so i've started with the title normally that would be the last thing i do i've started with the title then i think about the thumbnail and then i think about what would make a good video that fits that title. So I don't just make anything up, but if you know, if I'm going out doing street photography, I need to think about what's my hook. And the hook is in the title and the hook is in the thumbnail. So it might be street photography, the mobile phone, really? You know, that sort of thing, asking a question in the title or in the thumbnail. And now I've framed my end of the video. So I need to fit all those pieces in. So I need to think about, well, I've got to set the context of that. Why would I be using a mobile phone? Where would I be going? Obviously, I'm going to show the results. Do I need to compare it to a camera? And those sort of things I found give me a much more focused, less rambly, more polished YouTube video. And probably it takes less time to produce. Yeah, I think certainly that that, that makes a lot of sense what you were saying, kind of the, that um, there's that viewer journey of kind of starting at the beginning, middle and uh, an end. And that is often overlooked. And, is, um, and I think actually that's where the B-roll problem comes in because people uh, people try and cram it in without thinking about if it's worth watching. Um, but yeah, that kind of that structure of what am I producing and sort of working backwards from it. So the, I've never created a video without knowing what it's about. And you might be that you don't quite know how you're going to talk about it because I don't script my videos. I, I know largely what I'm going to talk about. And yeah, you've got to, you've got to have a, a point to it. Even in a, um, an unboxing video, I think my second to last video is happens to be an unboxing video. And you can just look at stuff but you've, you've got to have a context to it you've got to have a reason for doing it so why am i unboxing it what am i expecting to see am i comparing it to something am i um you know the uh, am i was i aware is this the first product from this company are you looking for something in particular and from yeah for, from that it's kind of oh i've got a i've got a structure here when you've got a structure that stops you from going off on a tangent because as, as you say you want to keep on track and you don't want to shoot things that you're not going to use. One of the best examples of that as a YouTuber, it doesn't really matter whether he's your kind of subject or not. In fact, it doesn't matter at all. Casey Neistat. So the one of the most, I mean, there's lots of interesting things about him as a YouTube phenomenon, but one of the key things is that he, he doesn't redo anything. So he's, he's trained himself over a number of years to not waste footage. If he films it, he uses it. And uh, so to begin with, that that starts with a load of footage that you don't want to use, but you filmed it. But now he's so 
so clear about what he's going to film and what he's not going to film that one, he doesn't waste time and two, he doesn't waste resources. The amount of video that I've got kicking about on hard drives, I haven't used. Baffling. And for someone who creates content far more than I do, it must be just completely overwhelming. If you can prevent yourself from filming content that you're not going to use, that's a big part of the battle. Not surprising we've talked about YouTube because that is the biggest content market engine search criteria. But I do the vast majority of my editing on an iPad. So I bought an iPad and I bought a fairly high capacity, but obviously I'm going to run out of capacity. So I've got into the habit of once I've done it, I delete it. And for so long, I was fearful of deleting my footage. Oh God, what if I need it again? I found the only time I ever need it again is if I refer to it in a future YouTube video. So I might say, oh, you remember I did this video on, well, I can just download that again from YouTube. And it's smaller. It's really small when you download it from YouTube. It's shockingly small when you download it from YouTube. It's been compressed so much. I just get rid of footage. I don't have any footage kicking around. Once the video's done, once it's on YouTube, it gets deleted. And I find that that's quite a freeing way to work. Casey Neistat, interestingly, I think he was doing, at one point, he was doing a video every day. Cope. There's no way you can cope with filming too much. You have to really streamline if you're doing that every day. But I want to talk about what's been a success that you never intended it. So, you know, I, I've picked something up. I thought, oh, I'll do a YouTube video on this and thought this is not going to do very well. And it's done very well. And I think I've got 191 live videos. So with that comes experience now of, oh, I think this will do well. I think this won't do well. But I've done things I thought this will be a hit and it hasn't been. And it's always surprised me. The only thing I've noticed is where things have been a bit of a surprise hit is where it's a very specific niche. So, and then I've, I've revisited that. I've done a couple of videos on that specific niche. And I'm quite pleased that in certain very, very, very specific niches, my videos are the top ones in search engines, YouTube or Google. And have you made any content and you thought this is going to be killer and it hasn't? And have you made any content that you've thought, I don't think this will do well, but I'll experiment and see where it goes and it's done better than you thought? I'm not sure so much the first one. I'm not sure I've created anything and thought that's going to be killer. Yeah, there's the. Uh, I think what you've touched on there with your content that um, did really well is the, the nicheness of it and the searchability of it. So people search for very specific things. They obviously don't search for generic terms because they're not after something generic. So if you have created something that, f uh, that fits um, a niche and it might feel like a niche, but worldwide, it's probably not a niche. And if you can tap into that, then what is something that feel uh, might feel quite a waste of time for you or might feel like a niche might be exactly what a lot of people are, are, are looking for. So I can I can see that um, that's why on YouTube you get a lot of the kind of six tips for this, six hacks, seven hacks. The number changes depending on kind of, you know, what is the current trend, five hacks for this, five camera hacks, because people type in camera hack, people type in uh, whatever camera they're using. So I, I now tend to search on YouTube for Sony a7 III because if I'm looking for something technical about about a camera, as much as I can see that, a, I don't know, a, a Canon RP might be a, um, a perfectly good camera, it's not the one I've got. So I want the thing that's specific to my needs. And yeah, there's been, I suppose, the successful and unsuccessful content for me is more, more easy to see on Instagram. It sort of comes down to 
the viewing type on Instagram. So the, as I say, I work with models quite a lot and probably it didn't occur to me. It honestly didn't occur to me to begin with, but you can see a direct correlation between how popular my images are and how many clothes the model is wearing. So, and it's quite, if you look about, if you look at it too much, it's quite depressing. So if they're fully clothed, it would, and it's uh, quite artistically done, then you'll get X amount of views or, or likes. Um, if they've got, if they're wearing less, you'll get some more. If they're wearing nothing, you'll get even more than that. And so that's kind of, you know, the, at its most basic. So my top 10 images on Instagram are basically all implied nude photos, except for one. The number two is fully clothed and it's a studio shot, whereas I, and I hardly ever work in a studio. And uh, it's a, a quite a well-known model, but she's not sort of internationally famous like one of, um, one of the other ones that sort of appears in my top 10. And I struggled for a little while to figure out what was successful about it. And it turned out it was the hashtags. And so that, that sort of goes back to the, the importance of the platform that you're on. I talked to a number of Instagram, uh, people with Instagram accounts who are far larger than mine. And for them, hashtags are a waste of time um, because I think once you get above about 60,000 followers it's all about the resharing and it's about kind of it becomes about something else for people starting out on Instagram people do still search and use the discover page so hashtags are really really important and I if there was one tip I'd give uh, someone on Instagram starting out I would say don't listen to people that tell you that hashtags are not important because the hashtags on that image of mine that is really successful, they are just well-chosen ones. They're kind of, you've got to have this balance between images that aren't used everywhere, uh, sorry, hashtags that aren't used everywhere um, and uh, also uh, hashtags that people just are never going to search for. So you've got to be in that sweet spot. Yeah, it's people are looking for it. And it's really easy to, one of the, well, one of the barriers to, that success on Instagram is that it's really easy to accidentally use a term which feels innocuous but it turns out Instagram have banned it and if you use one of those your post as a whole won't be discovered anywhere so my surprising most surprising post was just really well chosen hashtags we're now going to talk about what you can what gives the best return imagine you're starting from new or some you're advising someone who's starting from you what gives the best return now i am i work very much behind the camera i'm not one of these people who flings a phone up hi guys here i am i'm going here i'm having a coffee now i'm having a cake i'm back home now now i'm in my car that's not me at all as as we talked about earlier I'm not the average demographic. I don't think I'd look very good on camera, I, I must say. So that's not me. But thinking about what gives the best return, I would say from a photography point of view, getting a screen recorder, you don't have to spend a lot of money on it, getting an external microphone you can plug into your computer, maybe a USB microphone and recording an edit and showing maybe before and after, talking people through because you've got a bit of learning there, talking through how you do your Lightroom or your Photoshop editing, showing the before and after so that people can follow. That probably, I think, would probably work very well. You're going to be editing it, your photos anyway, so all you're doing is talking as you edit them and then quickly making that into a video. What do you think would give the best return on time investment, Jeff? I think we sort of touched on it before. So I think it's fulfilling a niche, which actually is, it's a niche that a lot of people are, are looking for. So something, a, a specific skill. So I think rather than, I think edit, editing is a good one, rather than just showing an edit from um, from start to finish, do show it from start to finish, but I think show it with a purpose in mind. So rather than just, I'm going to edit this image to show um, an edit that's going to go somewhere. So it's, I'm going to, I'm going to edit in this style. I'm going to turn this 
into a square crop black and white or you know something something that is both searchable but it's also there's a particular point to it so you're going to get to the end and you're going to have learned that thing the the difficulty i think in terms of retaining viewers for an edit video are twofold so there's the thing that kind of i don't know where this is going and therefore i'm not that interested in where it's going but there's also audience retention so it's it's easy to like you say it's it's a really good way in to sort of start filming things a screen recorder and a mic i would say that it would be a struggle to get someone to watch from start to finish if it's not absolute gold content i think so because people like to see humans i'm not saying that you have to be in your videos but I think it. I think you are creating a barrier if you're not willing to be in in front of the camera for a little bit. You don't have to be on it for the whole thing. Even as simple as you see, quite a lot of the the screen grab of uh, of the you know the video screen grab of of Lightroom or whatever editor you're using, and just a tiny little window of uh, sort of overlaid on that of the per of the face of the person because it just gives you a bit of variety to look at so because i get bored very easily just that having that sort of human contact is for me quite quite important but yeah i think have a purpose to what you're doing i quite agree with what you said actually i, th I think you're right I think putting a webcam up and having your webcam image in the bottom corner is really good and i think yeah talk having a focus so this this image i'm going to make i'm going to show you how to edit the eyes to make the eyes pop but I want to go back to something you said about repurposing a 15 minute editing video. Some people will watch to the end, but the statistic of how many people would watch to the end would be quite depressing. So you can record it for 15 minutes and put out a long version and a short version. Skip out several bits in your short version. So it's staged. So start. I've added this. I've added that. I've changed this. I've changed that. Here's the end image. And if you want to, you can see the full one here. I think repurposing as well would be quite useful there. Yeah. There's the, even the first one, there's two ways of going about that. You can, the, I've seen quite a number of people that have the long version of the video and they say, I'm going to go through the whole process here. But if you want to skip to a particular part, look in the description and you'll see the time code for where I start to do this, where I do this, where I do this. And so it sort of uh, enables that because it, it, it sort of acknowledges that people are going to skip through it, but to prevent them from randomly skipping through, tell them where to skip. So that caters for the people that are watching for the more for the personality. So they're going to watch all the way through uh, or because they just haven't got a, a time, you know, a reason to move on to something else quickly. But it also caters for the people that want to skip through. But yeah, if kind of do a shorter version. I'm starting to try and think now in my head, a YouTube video for me, I'm aiming for a maximum length of 10 minutes because uh, if I think about what I've done in the past, if I do a video longer than 10 minutes, I'm actually just repeating myself. So although there is some value in repeating yourself in, in sort of getting the point forward, but if you're only repeating yourself because you haven't got much to say, I think just stop saying it. And uh, that also leads you, you sort of know where your, your nugget of information is. And what I'm also trying to now start to think about doing is when I'm creating a YouTube video, whatever length, as I say, ideally less than 10 minutes, as well as editing my, my video to kind of wherever it gets to 10 minutes max, ideally, I think about, can I turn it into a minute version for Instagram? And in theory, you can put much longer videos than a minute on Facebook, but I don't know about you, but I've never watched a 10 minute video on Facebook. I'm far more likely to watch a shorter one. I'm unlikely to even watch one on Facebook. I find them annoying. I'll be honest. Oh, really? I hate, I hate that thing where really gone off Facebook. I think 20 years ago, Facebook was cool. Now, 20 years later, I don't think it's particularly cool, but I really hate it when you scroll through and all these videos start up. That drives me mad. Because most of them I don't want to watch. Videos on Facebook really annoy me. And the quality is never good. If I'm going to watch a video, I'd go to YouTube. But again, 
that's just me. That doesn't mean it's it's not a good strategy. I think that probably feeds into the overall strategy of, yeah, there are people like you and there are people like me and there are people like lots of other people and no one is quite the same. And so ideally, you want to put a bit on Facebook, a bit on Instagram, a bit on Twitter, a bit on LinkedIn, a bit on YouTube, so that you cater to those different personality types. Although I would say if you are time poor, like me, it's probably just best to focus on one. I focus on two things, podcast and YouTube. To focus on any more would just not be possible. Jeff, where can we find your website, your socials and other things? Aggravatingly, at the moment, my website doesn't exist. So I think possibly by the time this this podcast go out, I'll I'll have it back online. And if I do, it'll be at jeffhorn.co.uk. My most visible places are YouTube and Instagram. So on YouTube, I am... Well, they're both the same, actually. Uh, YouTube.com forward slash Jeff Horn Photography. And on Instagram, I am Jeff Horn Photography. I was going to say that's Horn with an E, isn't it? It is, yes. You know, I went through my entire school time. There was someone that I went to school with. He never said, hi, Jeff. Every time I saw him, he said, it's Jeff Horn with an E, Horny, for, for 10 years. Sounds like a form of bullying to me, Jeff. Yes. So I want to thank Jeff for featuring today. It's been great just to talk about content creation. Hopefully you as a photographer have either got some ideas or you thought this isn't for me or hopefully it's brought you somewhere further along in your thoughts on content creation. Maybe you've picked up some tips. Maybe you've just thought, I can't be bothered. I just want to do my photography. But hopefully it's given you something to think about. Before we go, Jeff, is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, I think possibly uh, just the, the bit that sort of answers that bit you just said. If it's not enjoyable, don't do it. There's there's a lot of things that you can find you're compelled to do, but there's uh, life's too short to do things that you don't enjoy. So uh, just uh, try and keep that enjoyment in mind. And as much as I enjoy YouTube videos and making them, I do not enjoy comments. I've never left a negative comment on a video. In fact, I don't think I've ever even thumbed down a video. I don't understand why people leave negative comments, but you will get negative comments because you can't please everyone. The nature of the internet, I think. People say what they think before they've thought about whether they should say it, and then it's out there. It doesn't make a difference at all what sort of interaction it is. A positive comment, a negative comment, a thumbs up, a thumbs down. From YouTube's perspective, it's all the same thing. It's all interactivity. So to a certain extent, although uh, just don't read the negative comments, at best, respond to them and just say thanks for your comment. But don't worry about it because it means that you are being interacted with and your channel will build because of that. No, I, I had heard that. And Actually, I read the negative comment and if it is a negative comment, I just I leave it up there and I don't reply to it. But I make sure I reply to every positive comment. And I think that's the best way to deal with it. Yeah. Treat it as the sort of the miniature conversation it is and sort of it's it's only there to to help you. So don't take it personally, because most of the time people don't mean it personally. I don't think there's the it's just that sort of the, the instant reaction. And because you can't see, I suppose, what's the term for it? Keyboard warriors. Because they can't be seen, they feel they can say whatever they like. And they can, but so what? Because, you know, it's only a comment. Exactly. And on that note of it's only a comment, we're going to finish today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a guest, Jeff. Thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you. Goodbye.